Father, we come into your presence. We are uh, humbled by your word. We're humbled by um, our failure to ever measure up according to your perfect standard of law. Lord, you, you, uh, your law is just so wonderful and so high and perfect, and we, um, we fall short nearly every day, nearly every moment. Uh, our hearts uh, fail, but yet, Jesus, your love for us is consistent. You never fail us. You are always faithful, even when we're faithless. But Lord, we want to continue to believe all your word. We want to continue to press into your life, Jesus. We want to dive in like it's a swimming pool to the very life that you offer for us and that you uh, desire from us. Uh, Lord, we want to receive from you the strength and the spirit to be able to understand your word, to be able to apply your word to our hearts today, and then to be able to teach uh, and, and minister the realities of your word to all those in our life who you place uh, through in our life this week. Uh, we want to be your servants. We want to be your people, a light to this world. And Jesus, I thank you for all the wonderful victories you've brought into our lives recently. Uh, but also we want to uh, see these trials that we're in as, as a part of your plan as well. And we want to learn how to trust you in these trials. In Jesus' name, amen. We often talk about trials and, and difficulties at church, and sometimes we give thanks for the wonderful things that, that God has done, and then sometimes we talk about the trials. Um, this week, we had, we had a lot of both. You know, we have people in the hospital. That's a big trial. You know, we have uh, the, the Harvest Fest. Raise your hand if you helped over at the Harvest Fest. Was it awesome? Okay, we... We served, we, we loved on the kids, we shared Jesus, uh, we partnered with uh, the church next door, which was really wonderful, DCBC, and seeing their hearts of love and service was really awesome as well. Uh, that we're all one big church, one big body of Christ, that was really great. Um, so th- we have times of victory, and then we have times, uh, and, and in those times of victory, we, we give thanks to the Lord, we praise the Lord, we're excited, and uh, oftentimes though, we have then trials that come and we forget all about the victories, right? We forget about giving thanks to the Lord. And uh, so we're going to see some of those themes as we, as we get into our text here today. So we're in Exodus 15. We're about halfway through. And then the first half, we had Moses singing a song of thanks and praise for the deliverance. And it's really the theme of the entire book of Exodus. The one word theme for the entire book of Exodus is redemption that God is, is, is delivering his people, redeeming them. So we talked about that last week. Well, this week, uh, let's start in verse 19. It says, uh, for the horses, it's summarizing, it says, for the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of sea upon them, and the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then look what happens. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, which means she's also the sister of Moses, which means she's also the girl that found Moses in the, you know, in the river and, and got him out. Or when the, when the uh, daughter of Pharaoh got him out, she was the one that says, hey, I can take him to someone to nurse him. That same Miriam look, uh, took a timbrel in her hand, okay? And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And uh, Miriam answered them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider uh, he has thrown into the sea. So last week we had Moses, he led the men in praising the Lord. And now we see that this true heart of worshiping and praising God that we studied last week, it spread to the women of the nation as well. And it's amazing, I see how the Lord brings those um, who love, uh, brings those who love, uh, those who we love as men he brings those with us when we start following after the Lord, when we start serving the Lord, when we start surrendering as men. So many times the women in our life are like, I'm going to come right with you. I'm going to come right underneath that leadership and we're going to start praising the Lord too. And they start doing their own thing. And this is why I focus on discipling men. Uh, if, a, if a woman comes up to me and says, hey, I want discipleship, I'll say, God bless you. What else do you want to talk about? Because uh, we're not—I'm not, not going to disciple a woman, not because it's—it's it's inappropriate per se, but just because um, my time God has called me to invest in men, and so we—I do that, and then the the men that are involved in their life will hope it spreads, it spreads, and that's just the way that the Lord has 
designed it all to work. Um, so the discipleship that we've talked about, it now continues in our text. We're going to see that God is going to now work in the men and, and in the women of this nation uh, together as they journey. But I want to read another verse to you first, and that's Romans 8.1, Romans 8.1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk, walk according to the flesh, but according to the what? Spirit. The spirit. Okay. Do you remember when you, when you got your job, the first week on your job was, was pretty much training week? You know, train, maybe it was training day or training week. Maybe it was like a month. Uh, you feel kind of uncomfortable. You don't know exactly what the expectations are. But at the end of that week, you're kind of getting the idea of what is what is expected for you at your job. Well, this is Israel's training week, okay? The first week, okay? They, they've come out of Egypt. They've crossed through the Red Sea. And now this is immediately following. This is the week that follows that event. And look what it says. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And you should highlight that word, wilderness. Okay? These people were enslaved one week ago. One week before this, they were slaves. They had masters. Then the blood of the lamb is applied to their lives. They, they slaughter the lamb. They observe Passover. And God kills the firstborn of Egypt. God mightily delivers them from Egypt. They leave Egypt, but then they're trapped at the edge of the Red Sea, at the end of hope. And then God delivers them there. They pass through the Red Sea on dry land by faith. They learn they can trust the Lord. God destroys their enemies. They are now truly set free. All their former masters are not just hiding, they are dead. They have truly been delivered. Now what? Are they supposed to do whatever they want? They've crossed over the Red Sea. What are they supposed to do? Why have they been set free? What should they do now? Remember, that they were called, while they were still in Egypt, they were called to go out into the wilderness and serve God. To serve God. That's what they were called to do. And so this is training week where they're going to learn how to serve God, to be sent out to be God's ministers in this world. They're learning how to do that. And so they go directly into the wilderness. And the wilderness is where they are tested. Now, if you don't know, if you're not connecting the dots, this story is all about us. You are these people. You were enslaved by sin. You have been delivered by Jesus. And then what? What do you do? You just do whatever you want? No, we're called to go out and serve the Lord. But where does he send us first? Almost always, invariably, Jesus sends us into the wilderness to learn how to serve him because faith is how we serve him. We need to walk by faith and faith always has to be tested and tested severely. That's just how faith works. If you didn't sign up for that when you became a Christian, I'm sorry you were misled, but it is going to happen anyway. You are going to be tested. Just because we're saved, it doesn't mean that our flesh and our corrupt nature is gone. Just because you believe Jesus died on the cross and you've asked him to forgive you, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden you are a good person. It means you're saved and your sin has been washed away, but it doesn't mean that your nature has been altered or transformed at all. And so we see people who come to know the Lord still acting like a fool, right? All the time. And how do we... How do we go through a process of transformation? Well, it happens in the wilderness. These trials in the wilderness, they help us to learn how to live in victory over the flesh. Again, our verse in Romans 8.1, there's uh, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so you're not condemned when you make a mistake and act like a fool, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
God is teaching us how to now walk. Once you stand in Christ, you're justified, you're born again, you begin a relationship with God, but after that, you've got to walk, you've got to grow in your relationship with him, and that is by the Spirit, and that's invisible, and it's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around what it means to walk by faith, because we're so used to walking by sight. Exactly. What we need to understand is there's no good thing in us. Our nature is corrupt. Uh, this morning, uh, George came up and shared a verse with me. And he said, hey, I just got a verse with you. The heart is deceitfully wicked. And it was Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitfully wicked. And who can know it? But the Lord is searching the heart. Okay? So we have this corrupt nature inside us. Every single one of us. We want to rebel. We want to do what's wrong. And we need to receive every single part of our goodness from an outside source. We need to receive transformation, which we call grace. It's a gift that we receive of his Holy Spirit. And we learn this in the desert. We get to learn this in the desert. Oh, I hate being in the desert. I hate being where it's dry. I hate being where it's difficult. But from God's perspective... It's where a lot gets accomplished in our lives and in our hearts. So why the desert? The desert is where we find out how weak we are. How long do you think you could walk out into the eastern plains here before you just die? <laughs> I think I would last about 22 minutes. I mean, there's rattlesnakes and there's nowhere to get a soda and... I mean, the whole thing is just danger, and I think I'm going to die really quick every time I, I just, you know. We find out how weak we are. We find out how much we've learned to live by the resources of the flesh. How addicted we are to ourselves and, and being comfortable and getting what we want all the time. In the desert, that comes up really fast because you, you can't. You can't meet those needs in the desert. The desert has a way of revealing all of this to us. As much as we hate it, we need the desert. We need the hard, difficult, strenuous times. Where did Jesus go right after he was baptized? Ha <laughs> ha! You guys are so well connected with the word. I love it. God knows that our weakness and everything bad in us is gross, but it's about to come out in the desert. He already knows about that all of it's there, but you don't know. You don't know how bad you are. God says, hey, I love you, I want to save you. And you're like, okay, save me. And he's like, oh, but you don't even know how much you need saving. So I'm going to bring some trials into your life, that really bring out how corrupt you are. And that will help you to understand how much I have loved you. I wasn't disappointed in you, and I'm not disappointed with you. And when you come to these trials and you fail miserably, just know that I am not leaving you. I am not forsaking you. I am showing you how bad you are. And how much you need to fall on your knees every day and come to me and ask me and depend on me for my Holy Spirit. There is nothing else in your life that matters except this, as much as this. You can't think that you know how bad you are because the heart is deceitfully wicked. We can't know it, the Bible says. We don't even know how bad we are. But the desert has a way of revealing it to us. Jesus is here to walk with us through all of our failures. And we need to see that these lessons show us God's perfect love for us. And when we fail, we're, we're seeing not that you have so far to go with Jesus. You do. But what we're really seeing is look how far God has come to rescue you. Look how far he has come. When you see it from that perspective, then it's easier for us to confess our sins to the Lord, repent quicker, because we're not trying to measure up to some standard. 
we're understanding more and more how much we need God and how much he will come to us quickly when we repent. Okay? So, the desert will, this is lesson number one for today. We got two big lessons. It will reveal our problems, number one. And number two, it will be where God shows his continued power and love. It's an opportunity for God to show us how much he needs us, and then he shows us how he meets those needs. He doesn't show you how much, how bad you are so that you can try harder. Why don't you just give, give a little more effort next time you run into a problem in the desert? That's not it. He shows us our need, and then he meets our need with his power and his love. Isn't that a wonderful Jesus? Isn't that a wonderful God? Yeah. Remember this. Once you identify with Jesus through faith, once you get saved, okay, you receive his death on the cross for your sins and you receive his new life that he offers through faith, you will find yourself in the desert. And if you wouldn't have received Jesus, you wouldn't be in the desert. Okay, he only brings this desert to his children. He only sends his children. He doesn't send all the crazy people in the world who reject him into the desert. They don't need it. They're not going to do anything if they realize how bad they are. He sends his children into the desert. You will find yourself in the desert. This world, this world, you don't change locations by going into the desert. You're just all of a sudden going through a really rough time in the place you were in, in the world. All of a sudden, things don't make sense. All of a sudden, there's a struggle. All of a sudden, this world seems strange and foreign to you like you're in a desert once you come to know Jesus. Your eyes are open spiritually and you're no longer, um, you're no longer able to just enjoy everything in the world and all the rebelliousness and all the uh, blasphemy and all the stuff that you were just okay with before. Now we just can't partake of anymore. We're just not happy with it. We instantly become strangers and pilgrims in this world. We wonder how we were ever satisfied with the stuff of this world before. So these people go three days into the wilderness and they find no water, it says. So our, lesson, our first lesson is there's nothing in this wilderness, wilderness itself that sustains your life. There's nothing in this world that can sustain your life spiritually. Once you come to know Jesus, you're made alive. How do you now sustain that life that, you, that you've been given? How do you do it? There's nothing in this world that can do it. Turn with me to Psalm 63, verse 1. Once you come to know Jesus, you have, con- you have plugged in to a life source and a, and a, and a spiritual source that that won't run dry, but it also, it it seals you off from being able to receive life from anything else. Nothing in this world will ever satisfy you once you come to start receiving the life of Jesus in your heart. In Psalm 63, this is a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. How about that? It's like someone planned this out. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Isn't that cool? There is nothing that can help or nourish your new life in Christ that God gives you that you receive when you come to know Jesus. You can't go back to the same well because you're going to find it's not good water anymore. You're going to find it's bitter water. Nothing can keep you alive spiritually except for God, coming to God like David with this desperate, humble, dependent heart where he says, nothing matters except you and you are my God and I'm going to seek after you because you're, you're the only water that quenches what's in my soul. Nothing can keep you alive spiritually. Not the pursuits or pleasures of this world. They don't matter anymore. They don't bring any of that life anymore. They don't work anymore. 
Before you were saved, you could go to the club and be like so refreshed the next morning. I just partied it up and I'm feeling great. It's Saturday. Right? Then you'd go do it again on Saturday night and Sunday morning and I'm feeling great. Then you come to know Jesus and it just doesn't work anymore. Now, instead of feeling great when you party, you just feel worse. You just feel empty. And thank God he makes it that way. Because the truth is, the more you seek after all these things, after you come to know Jesus, after you know the truth about Jesus, the more thirsty you're going to get. It's just like drinking salt water. Right? If you are in fellowship with God, Nothing in this world will quench your thirsty soul. Nothing. Maybe you're thinking about your life right now. And you're thinking, well, pastor, I am just fine. I party and it meets my needs. Then the only truth for that situation is that you don't know God yet. You haven't tasted of the true water. And I encourage you to seek his word and believe it. All right. Like David prayed in the verse we just read, God, you are the only thing I seek. I long for you and nothing else matters. That is the prayer of every true believer. I love you, Lord. Well, when you're in, sometimes you're speaking to someone and there's an objection. They say, objection. Okay. I like, as a pastor, to remember when I wasn't a believer, to think back to what life was like. And I want to remember that there may be someone in here today who, who's in that situation. And so that they might think, you sound obsessed with this relationship, and it sounds crazy. But nobody thinks it's crazy when a person dying of thirst jumps into a river to drink. Do they? I mean, you picture, like, Hunger Games when she was, like, all thirsty and she runs and she jumps into the river and she's just like, oh. right? We don't think that's crazy because it's the only thing that matters at that point in their life. It's their source of life, right? For us, for believers, this relationship with God is our source of life. It's the only thing that quenches that thirst. It's like the oxygen for a man drowning in the water who needs to get up and breathe, or it's like water to the one who's dying of thirst, it's amazing how water can change. <laughs> I'm going to read to you John 7:37. It says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, and he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus says, I, the reason we're talking about deserts today is because I am asking you to come and drink from me. I'm asking you to stop drink, drinking from everything in the world and instead to come to me and, and see what I'll do for you. Because I'm not saying come to me and drink and pay the price so, and I'll give you what you need. Well, he says it's free. Okay, well, let's continue on with our text in Exodus here. So now they came to Mara. Everyone say Mara. Mara. And they could not drink the waters of Mara for they were bitter. Did you know that the word Mara means bitter? That's right. This happens all the time. A believer um, recognizes that they are dying of thirst in a dry wilderness, and so they drink from the first fountain they come across, and they find that it's bitter. It doesn't satisfy so let's, again, take this and, and do our picture. Okay, you and I, we become a believer, then we go out into the wilderness because God wants to test our faith. And as he's testing our faith, we realize, man, I'm thirsty. I need more of this life. I know Jesus saved me and it was really great. So what do I do now? But I'm thirsty. I wake up this morning and I'm dry and I am ah, need something. So we drink from the first well we come across. And it doesn't satisfy. We say, man, I'm tired. It's been a long week. Then someone invites us to a party. And everyone's happy and having an awesome time, just like I used to. So I drink and I go indulging in the flesh. And what happens when I get home as a follower of Christ now? I find that I can't stand it anymore. I 
have no refreshment. I am not happy. I am not relieved. I am completely and totally unsatisfied. It's bitter water like these bitter springs of Mara after I come to really know Jesus. Nothing satisfies. Objection again. <laughs> I like these objections. Someone might say, why don't I just stay away from Jesus and then the world's stuff will still make me happy? Then I can party my whole life and be happy. Yes, you could do that. But then you would know Jesus. Once your eyes have been opened to the love and grace of Jesus, okay, you are made alive in a new way where you can see how shallow these things are and what kind of frauds they are. It's like God gives you the taste buds. They were always bitter, but now you can taste it. And if you want to keep living your life in this matrix world of make-believe, where you think you're alive, I guess you can do that. You can go ahead and do that. But when you're actually made alive by the wonderful love and power of Jesus, nothing compares. I don't have to try to tell you why Jesus is better than your stuff that you're into. He just is. And once you taste and see, you'll never go back. And if you go back, you're going to say this is bitter. It doesn't work anymore. When, a, uh, when young believers think that God is going to make an easy road for them after they come to know uh, Jesus, after they get saved, they're in for a surprise. He has a lot of work to do. So we need to get ready, but it's worth it. It is difficult, all these bitter springs that we're going to come across, but nothing compares. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. And the people complained against Moses. So look what happens. They, they drink from this water. It's bitter. And so what do the people do? They complain against Moses. So I'm going to quote to you from Arthur Pink, one of my favorite new guys that I've been reading a lot. He says, their murmuring was against, uh, their murmuring, excuse me, blah, blah, blah. murmuring is a hard word to say 10 times faster. Their murmuring against Moses was, in reality, murmuring against the Lord. And so it is with us. Every complaint against our circumstances, every grumble about the weather, about the way people treat us, about the daily trials of life is directed against the one who works all thing, uh, things after the counsel of his own will. Have you ever complained? Mm. We are the same as Israel, aren't we? I'm shocked at seeing how these people are so awful when I read them on paper and then, I, and then I hold up and I'm like, wait, this is just a mirror. Like literally, it's just me that they're talking about. Our flesh is rebellious and evil. Our flesh needs to be broken and our victory needs to be won by the Spirit for us. We only see this in the desert when it's dry is is where we're tempted to drink of these bitter springs and we find out that they truly are bitter. It took, listen, it took three whole days for them to forget who was leading them. Three whole days. From then they were delivered by God through the Red Sea. Three whole days. Was it Moses that was leading you guys? No. Who was leading them? God was leading them, okay? It, it, he literally is still leading them with a giant pillar of cloud this day. But where are their eyes at? They just go to right here, right? To where Moses is, wherever he is, right there. Instead of just going up to the Lord, their eyes are on Moses. They're complaining to the wrong person, right? Their eyes fell to what they could see easily again they're so used to walking by sight and so are you and i we grow up it is all we know is walking by sight and walking by faith is just a mystery and just weird but god is going to teach us to walk by faith instead of raising their eyes to the cloud leading him they blame moses we need to get used to this pattern because you know we're going to see this time and time and time again they constantly blame Moses. 
God just delivered them from the greatest army in the world, who can stand against him? But they forget about him because their eyes can't see him. And he's training them to walk by faith, what they can't see. It's so easy to blame someone we can see instead of trust a God that we cannot see. We do it all the time. Someone cuts us off on the road. That! Blah, 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 blah. It's not them that you're complaining at. It's not them you're calling out. You're doing it to God. God knew that they were going to do that. God brought this situation into your life. How can we complain against the Lord? Hmm. She made me mad, so I'm mad. He hurt me. I'm justified in my anger. They're the problem. It's my spouse. It's my parents. It's my church. It's my pastor. It's my friends. It's my enemies. They're all wrong. All of it's wrong. Or God is in control, and he demands my faith and my trust. And he says to love my enemies which one is true? Well, in our heart, both are true, honestly. There's a big part of our heart that says, rah, 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 rah. and there's a big part that says, I, I know you're in charge, Lord, and I'm, I'm learning to put my trust in you. I rebel when I don't trust him. That happens all the time. And God is so patient in my rebellion to keep teaching me to walk by faith and not by... Yeah. So these people complained, and what did they say? They said, what shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord. Moses does what, what we should do, what they should have done, and he prays, right? So in the difficult situation, in their failure, he prays. The problem is that most of God's kids today are so obsessed with getting the blessing that they forget the blesser is the one who needs to be pursued first. If they were abiding in a relationship with God this whole three days, so difficult to ask, I know, they would never have found themselves in this situation. And if they did find themselves here, they would have confidently trusted in the Lord to provide. Over and over again, we see these people face challenge after challenge, and we're going to see them cry out to the Lord after, after, each time after they mess up or after they're presented with the circumstance. Why not abide in him when the good times are here? Then when the trials come, they would have strength spiritually. They would have victory continually. He saved them so that they could serve him continually, the Bible says. Not just, he doesn't just want to be their problem fixer. And God doesn't just want to be your problem fixer. Yes, he is going to fix their problems. And yes, he's going to fix your problems. But he is after so much more than that. He says, oh, if you just knew what you had with me, you could abide with me and I would provide all your needs along the way. And when you get to these trials, you would be like, I'm not drinking that. I'm going to trust in the Lord. He's led me these three days. Why would I come drink the first thing that comes across my path? I'm going to wait for the Lord to direct me. He didn't tell me drink from this. Abide in the Lord continually. Do you remember when the disciples got sent out to uh, cast out demons? They got sent out and they were really happy because all the demons they were able to cast out. And then they came to this one demon and they couldn't cast him out. And they came to Jesus and they're like, why can't we cast out this one demon? And Jesus is like, guys, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Now, is he giving a formula for how you can cast out demons? No, what he's actually doing is he is telling them prayer and fasting is a way of connection with me. It's a way where you learn to depend on me. It's a relationship-building tool that you and I have. It's not a work that makes you somehow more special than someone who doesn't pray and fast. It's a relationship-building tool. And so he's saying, if you want to truly be spiritually powerful over all spiritual enemies, you have to have a really close relationship with 
me. My power has to flow through you at all times. You can't just think because I appointed you and you're somehow now special. You still need one-on-one connection with me daily. And that's the lesson in that whole situation. These guys are experiencing the same thing. Oh, we're the chosen people. Look, he delivered us. Now we can do whatever we want. And God's like, no, you don't understand how much you need me. But God's love never fails. He never intended to leave them thirsty. He never would abandon them. He will give them the grace that they're seeking. His love never fails. When we are faithless, the Bible says he remains faithful. He knew they were going to fail here. He was always going to provide them water. But this, the way this happens teaches them a very important lesson. So Moses here, he pleads with God, showing us the what to do when we've failed, when we've tasted the bitter waters, when we see our own need. And what is God's response to this prayer? It says here, and the Lord showed him a tree. How cool is this? Moses didn't see the tree before prayer. He did, there was a tree right there. Why didn't Moses think, I'm going to throw this tree? In the... Because that doesn't make any sense, right? But in prayer, it says the Lord showed him a tree. Before Moses, before Moses humbled himself and, and asked the Lord for help, he had no idea what to do. But after you pray and you seek the Lord and say, Lord, help me, I need wisdom. What does James says? God will give everyone wisdom who asks for wisdom, right? So, we are blind to the help God has already given us until we pray and seek the Lord. Man, I wish my life would stop being screwed up all the time. Do you pray? That's a good question. It's a good question. Maybe your answer is, yes, of course, I pray all the time. Okay, just a question. Because I see that when we pray, God shows us what we need. He reveals it to us. He, now look at this. This tree had to come from somewhere, right? Now do you think it fell from outer space? Do you think it was like, I, I don't, can't think of any other weird examples right now, but it didn't just magically appear, right? This tree was planted by God like a million years ago. Well, like a hundred or ten. I don't know. Long time ago. Because trees don't grow quick. And look at this. God has already prepared the solution for your problem. Nothing that you're coming across today is a surprise to God. He has already prepared the solution. He already planted the tree years ago. He's been working things out. He knew that today you'd be like, what is happening in my life? And he would say, are you going to seek me? Because I already have a solution worked out. I love you so much. I've been preparing this for so long. For us, it seems like this is a crisis. For God, there's never a crisis. There's only provision and love and grace for those who seek him. This tree was planted many years ago. He has prepared the way of escape for every one of your trials. Do you guys think of that, uh, that verse? Whenever there's a temptation, he is faithful to prepare a way of escape. And he's already prepared it. It's, it's already old. It's already mature and ready. But we can only see these when we pray. Seek the Lord in humility and faith. Hagar was, in Genesis, remember Hagar? Uh, she was cast out by Abraham, and she thought she was going to die. And so her teenage son is like crying. Like, eh. <laughs> She's like, oh, we're going to die. And, and, and she prayed, and the Lord showed her a well. He had a provision for her. Um, you know, uh, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, is another example of that that we studied. And what did God show Moses? What salvation was prepared for the people of God? A tree. A tree. What do you think that speaks of? The cross, exactly. The person and work of Jesus is pictured by the tree so many times. And it says here in our text, he cast it into the waters and the waters were made sweet. So our second lesson, okay, the first one was that God 
uh, we're never satisfied by uh, this world. And the, and the second lesson is that nothing will ever change the bitter problems of this world except for sweet fellowship with Jesus. Nothing will ever change how bad the cancer hurts, how, how much the, the pain is except sweet fellowship with Jesus. It can transform it. Did I say it will take it away all the time? No, but it will transform it. And then we'll find that in our pain, in our cancer, in our struggles, we are sharing with us fellowship of Christ's sufferings, and that becomes more sweet to us than anything the world could offer us. Hey, why don't you come over here and get rid of all your pain and do all these things to lessen the pain? And you're like, why would I do that? Every time I feel this pain, I'm reminded of my closeness with Jesus, of his love for me as he suffered on the cross. Why would I want to get rid of it? It's a real mature, uh, maturing part of our life. All our trials are made sweet when we remember our newfound identification with Jesus, and it grows stronger when we suffer. It doesn't take away our pain, like I said. A beautiful picture of this is Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas were in Philippi and they just got beaten up and thrown into prison and that is a bitter trial indeed. I mean, I haven't seen any of you get beaten up recently. Anyone? We haven't got beaten up, but if we did, you know, I would be pretty bitter. I would be angry. This is unjust. It shouldn't happen in our world. And what did they do as they were sitting in prison? Sulking? No. They threw the tree into it. They threw the cross into their situation. And what happened is that they remembered the love and blood and suffering of Jesus. And what happened? Only sweet praise comes out of their mouth and not the bitterness at the people who hurt them. But it's just praise to God. Isn't that amazing how that transformed them? Because the tree was in their heart now. The branch was growing in their heart. The branch is another name in the Bible for Jesus. The root. So now only sweetness comes forth from the well of their heart, the wellspring of their soul, and every bitterness that they experience is made sweet by this relationship with Jesus. And we'll continue with our text here. We're almost done, guys. We're just about done. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. So just in case you wondered what the summary and the whole reason for this entire thing is, is it was a test. It says there he tested them. And what did he instruct them with after this test? What was kind of the lesson he made? He said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will Put none of the diseases on you which I brought to the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. This whole incident was a test. Are you going to stop thinking you know what's best, guys? Now that we're out in the wilderness, now that you have no other life except me, now that nothing satisfies you but me, can you stop thinking you know what's best for your life? Are you going to decide to trust me and follow me through my word or are you going to keep doing what you think is best for your life? It's a test. He poses that question to them. Are you ready? Or do we need another bitter spring tomorrow and another and another? Let's respond to that test with a firm. Okay, I'm done. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. Amen? Okay, I'm gonna be, he, he says this in response to this question, this test. He says, I am going to be very kind to you. I promise. I am not here to destroy you like I destroyed your enemies. I could destroy you if I wanted, but I love you. And instead of all the diseases and all the destroying that I did, what I desire for you is healing. So why are you running away from me? Why is that constantly in your heart? To say, I don't need you, Jesus, this morning. I don't need you. I don't need you in this relationship. I don't need you in this area of my life. 
I'm going to do what I think is best right here, even though I know it's not what you would have for me. Through this test, they learn more detail about the character of God. They learn his name is Jehovah. Is it Shama? I didn't look up the actual Hebrew for this. But it's the Lord who, who heals. Rapha, is it heal? Okay, thank you. The Lord who heals. They learn more about who God is through this test. Just as we learn when we're tested, when we go through our difficult times, we learn more about the character of God, whether we fail or we succeed, because his lesson comes to us either way. If your faith excels and you get through a test, that is wonderful. It means you know the Lord. You know that part. And if you don't, it means you get to know him new. Isn't that great? It's like, how can we fail when we're following Jesus? Okay, one last verse, and this one is awesome. It says, Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. After this testing comes a time of refreshing. It says they camped there. They abided there. They just waited there. Because God always provides a place of escape And his desire for you is to learn to rest in him. Now, Bible scholars, 12 and 70, what does that make you think of? 12 tribes, what else? 70 people went down to Egypt, okay. Think New Testament. 12 what? 12 disciples? 70 times 7, okay. In Luke 11 and 12, or 9 and 10, I think. Um, Jesus has his 12 disciples, and he sends them out. And it says he gave them power and authority to cast out demons, and they just, they're serving God spiritually, okay? Then in the next chapter, it says, then he sent out 70, and they went out serving him, okay? So I see, and that's a very quick summary of, of just serving. 12 and 70 both speak of God's authority and God's kingdom and God's government that he establishes. We have the 12 thrones up in, up in the book of Revelation, right? You got 70. Um, there's a lot. There's a whole lot there that we don't have time to get into right now. But suffice it to say, 12 and 70 both speak of serving God. But what do we see here is the recipe for successful serving God. It's resting resting they were tested in their testing they learned about abiding relationship with jesus and then serving is something that naturally just flows they're led to it they're like oh i wish i could serve the lord in this area how do i get there you wait upon the lord you abide in his word and he will lead you to those 12 palms and 70 wells of water it will be a restful experience no one serves the lord with a stressed out attitude it's just not the way it happens well i don't know how the lord is going to do all this bro calm down i don't either like look around today we're like really full we're going to be doing that white flag wiggle soon right all right that means we're going to have to do two services eventually that means we're going to need tons of servants more children's ministry, more worship servants, more everything. And in my flesh, I'm like, oh my gosh. And in, but I've learned, like our text says, I'm just going to wait upon the Lord. I'm just going to pray and we're going to see the Lord lead us to the place where ministry is restful, where it's exciting to come and it's just refreshing to be in his presence again. Amen? All right, guys, stand up with me. We're going to sing, right? One or two more songs. One more song. What we do at the end of service every week, uh, generally, is we have the communion elements up here. And we do that so that uh, you have an opportunity to not just say, wow, that was a, a nice sermon, but hopefully you forget about me. Hopefully you forget about me. And hopefully that... Instead of remembering me or anything I say, you take maybe one or two of the real practical things that Jesus spoke into your heart as we were talking. And you go up here 
and you engage with him directly and say, Lord, uh, the, the bread is you dying on the cross. It represents your death for me. And the cup, it represents the new life you poured. And because of your death and your resurrection, these promises you've made today, they can be mine. Not because of my actions, but because of your actions. And I'm going to take them, and I'm going to make them mine by in consuming them, making it inside of us. Okay, So maybe this is a day of real repentance and change for you where you say, I've been bitter, and I've been just disobedient and not trusting in the Lord. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to come to him in obedience and surrender today. You do that by yourself with the Lord. It doesn't make any difference whether you do it in front of a ton of people or you do it alone, because if it's fake, it's fake. And fake never works with Jesus, right? All right, so let's humble ourselves before the Lord and pray. Father, we, we come to you in, in humility, the Lord acknowledging our need is so great. Our, our wickedness of our heart is truly uh, vile. Yet, Lord, your love is so much higher and so much greater than that that you would give your Son to die on the cross for our sins as the substitute for our punishment. So now our flesh dies as we surrender our lives to you. And Lord, we do uh, choose to repent of our our fleshly ways of doing things. And we want to trust in your word day by day and we want to look to you. We don't want to let three days go by from when we praise you. We want praise to be daily, thanksgiving to be hourly. And Lord, we want to live rejoicing in the Lord always. God, I pray for your powerful hand to be on each one of our hearts this week and help us to understand that you are for us and not against us. And you will grant us answers to our prayers if we would pray. And you will work powerfully uh, to heal us because you are our healer. You are not here to destroy us. You can destroy our flesh and you are willing to destroy our flesh. But our spirit is an always abounding source of life in you, Jesus. And we love that. We love you in response for you first loving us. Jesus, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we sing now. Amen.